Alrighty, everybody. Welcome back. We've got another episode of the Basin Breakdown, this one being for the month of February in 2021. It is myself, of course, Tavis Killian, here with Gunnar Merrick. What's up? And we are stoked to bring you some of the biggest news stories, Basin by Basin, for that month. So, without further ado, we're just going to hop right into it. Starting right here at home in the DJ Basin, Colorado representatives voted along party lines, sending a public lands package to the U.S. Senate. This deal affords protection to an additional 650,000 acres in the San Juan Mountains and around the Continental Divide. These areas will no longer be allowed to be leased for oil and gas development. Surprise, surprise. Democrats defended their decision, saying that land needs to be preserved now so it will remain undeveloped for future generations. Republicans fought the decision saying that there are too many resources in the ground that could be developed rather than relying on foreign countries for supply. These lands already have federal status, but 36% of Colorado land is already federally controlled and limits what mineral extraction may take place on its grounds. This doesn't sound terrible to me. I mean, it is 650,000 some acres, but that's that's pretty small compared to the entirety of the state. So sure, I think it's a good idea to probably save some land for that, but like it says, there's already 36% that has some issue with mineral extraction right out the gate. So I don't know where I stand on this. Yeah. And really, I mean, mountainous regions are renowned for their access to rare earth minerals. And if we want to transition to a electric battery based society, uh, we're going to need those minerals, excluding them from oil and gas development. Yeah, I could see that. But you know, we're, they're just going to revisit this in the near future, and, and it's going to be a, a whole hoopla. And if you do remember, last month, Rare Petra reported on talks looking to retrofit compressors. As the talks continued, the focus transitioned to controllers, and an agreement between environmentalists and industry actors has been reached. The new rule requires all new controllers to be non-emitting, and pushes to retrofit old controllers. This is a first-in-the-nation rule that was actually reached with little pushback after a compromise was established. There's not a whole lot to talk about, Commissioner Elise Jones said. This is such an unusual situation with everybody agreeing. The goal is to have a large portion of controllers in the state non-emitting by May 1st, 2023, which would be about three years after the agreement's inception. Controllers account for roughly 29% of industry air emissions, so this rule could spread from Colorado to the nation. Yeah, this is another example of uh, kind of a common sense legislation um, in Colorado leading the way, so I think it's a net, net benefit for all. Net benefit for all, of course, but my biggest question is, what's the return on that? Sure, environmental, but who's going to pay for it? <laughs> who's going to be doing the work? There's lots of people who need the work, but I know most people probably wouldn't want to pay for it. Moving up north to the Powder River Basin, the Biden administration has put a halt to the quarterly Wyoming lease sale. The BLM mentioned that this delay will allow the new administration to get up to speed and comb over environmental policy currently associated with the sales. Industry participants are worried for the mid to small cap companies that typically benefit from these lease sales. They don't have the capital to compete with super majors, so lease sales like these often help these companies stay afloat, especially if they're looking to replenish portfolio reserves. Others are pleased with the administration's decision as they feel taxpayers should reap more benefits from the oil and gas activity in the state, and this pause gives the Biden administration an opportunity to do so. Sure, this pause gives them an opportunity, but we're coming up on 60 days of federal drilling moratorium. I mean, I, I haven't heard anything yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see more time being put into these pauses around the around the country. Um, it's kind of unfortunate, but 
you know, they're the people at the BLM are only human, so you got to give them a little time to read through all the paperwork. Still, uh, my hope is that this gets pushed along fairly quickly. Also in Wyoming, Governor Mark Gordon understands how impactful the federal moratorium and other policies can be to his constituents, so he backed several legislative proposals aiming to address these people. One of these proposals would slash the state's severance tax levied on oil and gas operators in half. Many oppose the bill, as it is just another subsidy for oil and gas and does not address the looming state budget issues. Governor Gordon has doubled down on coal, saying it will be necessary for extracting and refining rare earth minerals necessary to produce green tech. Other bills introduced focus on tourism and agriculture, as these two combined with oil and gas is what brings the most money into the state. Yeah, I think, you know, Governor Gordon is kind of on the right track. He needs to do something to support the ailing uh, uh, industry up there. However, his opponents have a good uh, point in that this doesn't address the upcoming budget <laughs> issues for the state. So. Next up, we got to swing it over to Texas, and I would be doing a disservice if I didn't talk about the freeze. Well, if somehow you didn't hear about it, Texas was hit with 30-year low temps that froze a lot of the energy infrastructure in the state. Anywhere from half a million to two million barrels of crude production had to be shut in, and a lot of that is not going to come back online until well into March. Refineries were even denied energy and had to shut down while the state did its best to support its residents. Things got to be so bad that companies will fail to deliver on many of their contracts. These are all just immediate effects. Well completions fell 40% in February, as the cold made it increasingly difficult to work, and this means that supply chains have paused near the top, where lots of production was taken offline and incomplete wells have slowed. This has all placed upwards pressure on pricing, but at the great cost for the state of Texas. If some of the details are still a little bit fuzzy to you, Kevin just released a great periodical. You can find it on our website, rarepetro.com. You can both read it or listen to the podcast version. So go ahead and scroll down a little bit more, and you will be sure to find it. A Texas coalition of oil and gas trade groups and operators have banded together in an effort to end routine flaring by 2030. The Texas Methane and Flaring Coalition hopes to lead by example and only flare when safety deems it absolutely necessary. Since 2013, it is estimated over 1 trillion cubic feet of natural gas has been flared. A report from the Environmental Defense Fund shows that if 98% of natural gas is captured from wells by 2025, it could yield an additional revenue of $440 million. The coalition has been working since late 2019 to implement creative solutions such as using drones and robots to quickly detect leaks. Called Maiden, the fund's director of regulatory and legislative affairs for Texas says, the science is clear that flaring cannot be an afterthought. Left unchecked, the practice is compounding the industry's methane problem at a time when investors and overseas markets are calling for cleaner production. You know, the funny thing here is if they just put all of that flare into Bitcoin mining, they could probably turn that $440 million into a billion dollars. Oh, yeah. If they would have started way back when. I mean, those trailers are cool. But it's cool to see that both Colorado and Texas have at least their head in the right place and are trying to work to convince people, well, banks and people with the money that it could still be done and we could still produce responsibly. Yeah, the biggest hurdle is obviously storage and the economic uh, incentive to do so, right? It's got to you got to get subsidized somehow because in a free market, nobody's going to nobody's going to store their gas. Keeping it in the Texas neck of the woods, you know we have to talk about the Eagleford, although, like always, there's not a lot of exciting things going on there. What I can tell you is that oil permitting fell 10% from December to January, but majors in Texas are putting up rigs at a six-month high. The Permian and Eagleford were responsible for 52% of the total permit count. 
For the whole basins, the Permian reported a 12% loss on the month, with Eagleford posting bigger losses at 35%. The decline in Texas was primarily driven by independent companies as majors rose to a high of 47. Or more simply, small and mid-cap is hurting and the super majors are doing well. The Eagleford decline was driven in large measure by Marathon Oil Corporation and ConocoPhillips, whose permit totals plummeted by 32 and 21 respectively, or 72 and 73%. So clearly not doing as well as the Permian, but kind of expecting it with those comparative lifting costs. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is uh, the the contraction that started a year ago is still having effect and it will well into the future. Um We'll just have to see what what the rising oil prices have to say about that, though. 2020 was certainly a difficult year for many, but it was especially tough on Chesapeake, and that is saying something. (laughs) Fortunately, they have finally emerged from Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Chesapeake found itself threatened in the late 2010s because they had predicted natural gas would be the energy of the future, and 80% of their production portfolio reflected this fact. Unfortunately, Gas field discoveries like Haynesville and further development of the Permian put them in a bad financial place, and they had to spend lots to add liquid crude properties to their portfolio. Now the company's future looks promising. Chesapeake hopes to center most of their efforts on LNG export to the rest of the world, as well as 85% of their efforts in the Permian, although they do plan to keep one rig running in the Eagleford. But that's about all we got for Texas, so we're going to move it on over to one of my favorite gas basins, the Marcellus Basin. First of all, pipelines are kind of struggling to find a way into the Marcellus. Midstream companies in the United States remain apprehensive about putting money towards new pipeline projects, especially under current administration. The Biden administration made its stance clear by revoking the permit for the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, but there's even pushback on a smaller scale. In July of last year, two companies, Dominion Energy and Duke Energy, jumped ship on an $8 billion Atlantic Coast pipeline project. Since the Marcellus is booming, it would have been useful to move gas out of Pennsylvania into the coast. Unfortunately, disagreements with environmentalists caused extreme delays and skyrocketed costs. Even New York rejected a pipeline last May that would have mobilized gas from the Marcellus. The demand for energy still exists, especially in regions like the Marcellus, but it would seem that infrastructure to cater to that demand will not be approved in the near future. And that's just a damn shame. There's so much energy to move, and I, mean, I guess what else do we do with it? Just rails to the coast and then lng to other countries who want it yeah and the and the real irony here is that as our energy needs develop and as our society develops we still refuse to use the latest and greatest technology to transport this energy it's purely political climate and and my hope is again that we'll we'll pendulum back to a a more normalized stance here in the near future for our next story the delaware river is responsible for delivering water needs to several million people in northeastern states. The Delaware River Basin Commission will be banning natural gas drilling and fracking near the banks of the river, citing the potential for significant, immediate, long-term risks. This directly affects two counties at Pennsylvania's northeast tip that operate out of the Marcellus. Already, landowners and Republican legislators are filing lawsuits to challenge the commission's authority to regulate gas development within the watershed. Gene Barr, chief executive at the Pennsylvania Chamber of Business and Industry, claims this was a political decision uninformed by science. In the past, the Basin Commission has been working to introduce updated environmental regulations before pivoting in 2017 in favor of all-out bans. Conservation officials 
once estimated that gas companies had leased more than 300 square miles of the Delaware River watershed, land which is about one-third of one percent of the total area of the Marcellus Basin. While this is relatively small in scale now, there is no telling how much more pushback the region will experience in the near future. Again, this to me is a lot like that Colorado story we just looked at. Sure, we're saving some land for conservation reasons, or here, even water needs. But, I don't know, 0.33% doesn't sound terrible, but I guess 0.33 here, there. Then you get 2% of the entire basin eventually, and then 3, 4... I don't want to use the slippery slope fallacy, but I don't think this is terrible. Yeah, and and watersheds are very sensitive areas. However, when you expand out and look at the precedent this could set for any watersheds in any states, uh, then you have a more significant problem. Keeping things gassy, we're going to move from the Marcellus to the Bakken of North Dakota. So, Norway-based Equinor Energy continues to divest its U.S. assets. It will now be selling North Dakota and Montana assets to private producer Grayson Mill Energy for $900 million. The high cost per barrel in the Bakken is simply too much to retain the interest of Equinor. Now, they are attempting to optimize their portfolio in order to strengthen profitability. The money from the sale will be put towards assets that the company feels are much more competitive than what exists in the Bakken. When asked if they plan to sell additional U.S. assets, they provided no specifics but said that they were mostly happy with remaining U.S. operations, those being plays in the Marcellus and the Gulf of Mexico. Equinor acquired its Bakken acreage by acquiring a company for $4.7 billion and has reported losses of $21.5 billion between 2007 and 2019 and an additional $5.5 billion for 2020. Wow, no wonder you're losing so much money when you're flipping property. You're picking them up for $4.7 billion and then selling for $900 million. Yeah, you know the old adage of uh, buy low, sell high? They got it backwards. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and even to a larger extent, this is obviously the uh, uh, environmental pressures at home uh, forcing a company to make a terrible, terrible business decision. Even if they are losing money on a production basis, uh, you, there's no excuse for selling that low. On the government side of things, although the current administration is doing its best to hinder domestic energy extraction, North Dakota expects oil output to begin picking up once again in the spring once everything thaws out. Although North Dakota did produce 1.2 million barrels per day in December, it was still a decrease from the previous months as the cold continued to hinder work and development. Linhelms, director of the Department of Mineral Resources, noted that the federal drilling moratorium did temporarily hinder production before exemption was granted to oil-producing tribal lands like the Fort Berthed Indian Reservation. Even so, the order could reduce North Dakota's total new wells by 14%. In order to capitalize on the exemption, lawmakers are working on a Senate bill which would expand a tax-sharing agreement with the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation to incentivize more oil drilling on the borders of the Fort Berthed Reservation. This would allow horizontal drilling to reach under the reservation and tap into reserves that are significantly more difficult to access with current federal orders. This is badass. Use horizontal drilling to keep surface disruption to a minimum, reach under into the reservations, and then share the tax benefits with them. What is not to like there? Lastly, you know we got to talk about the Keystone XL because on paper, the pipeline is dead. But that doesn't mean there are no lasting impacts, as assets remain stranded along its 1,200-mile path, including 90 miles of in-ground pipe and 48,000 tons of pipe that never quite made it. 
Farmers along the path of the pipeline dream of TC Energy returning the land to what it once was as the natural prairie grass that once existed above the pipe is now gone. Fortunately, in situ abandoned pipe is environmentally friendly, but the steel will continue to erode and rot as it returns to its natural state over the course of time until it introduces new challenges for people hoping to develop the land much further down the road. There's still 10 pump stations and 11 man camps as TC Energy continues to decommission the project. Since the pipeline is now not operational, there was an environmental cost for absolutely zero financial return. The death of the Keystone XL is a devastating loss for all parties involved, and I just wanted to include this because, sure, you can sign away a project, but that doesn't mean nothing else happened. Like they said, 90 miles of pipe in ground, people's land destroyed for no reason. I mean, if it, at least it produced and they got some kickback, they would have been happier than just got torn up. <laughs> yeah, this is... Every time I every time I read or talk about this uh, this project, it's just sad. It's sad on the government side. It's sad for the, the communities involved. Um, just a, a, a great loss all around. We will round things out with everybody's favorite oil and gas state, California. California continues to propose incredibly stringent regulations for the oil and gas industry. Two state senators introduced a Senate bill that would halt all fracking steaming, and other activities perceived as risky next year. The bill, now dubbed the End Fracking and Harmful Drilling Act, would also attempt to install rules for 2,500-foot setbacks. While this would hamper state income, the bill includes a provision to fund incentives for contractors cleaning up old wells to hire displaced oil and gas workers. This bill is one of the proposed solutions to Newsom's request aiming to ban fracking in the state within the next five years. Rock Zierman, chief executive officer of the California Independent Petroleum Association, was quick to criticize the bill, saying, It would virtually ban all oil production in California, killing thousands of quality, high-skilled union careers that cannot be replaced by low-skilled and temporary jobs in the renewable industry, and would make the Saudi royal family even richer, all while eliminating the industry that is investing in the innovation needed to significantly reduce the state's carbon footprint. When probed about his feelings on the bill, Gavin Newsom said that he would not comment as the bill was only recently submitted and he had not yet read it. I did leave out the important detail that it was only submitted a few hours before when he'd received it, so he may not have actually had a chance, but oh my goodness. So not only get rid of fracking, steam injection, and a 2,500-foot setback? I, I don't see a way for the industry to survive, especially in California, if those are the rules. Yeah, you might as well just write a multi-trillion dollar check to foreign oil producers right now rather than delaying it into the future, aid eh, Newsom? And although the state is struggling to identify what it wants out of itself, CalGem has been accused of being too generous in its approval of oil and gas permits, and the state of California is being sued because of it. The Center for Biological Diversity claims that CalGem, quote, as a consistent and ongoing pattern and practice, of ignoring its legal obligation to conduct environmental review before issuing oil and gas permits throughout the state, end quote. CalGem maintains that it follows all state laws and regulations when permitting and added that they have strengthened oversight and imposed more rigorous enforcement in recent years. Those in the industry have commented that this lawsuit will likely fall flat, claiming that it is not based on fact at all. Yeah, I think the Center for Biological Diversity uh, 
is ignoring their legal obligation to be founded in reality. <laughs> I think the Center for Biological Diversity could easily look at most other states in the country and go, oh, wait, no, oh, CalGem is doing a top-notch job at restricting leasing and permitting. <laughs> now we will head home to Oklahoma. Governor Stitt refuses to take the Washington orders without a fight. Executive Order 202103 serves to highlight Oklahoma's role in providing global energy and attempt to show Washington that they will not be missing out on state revenues. The order cites federal overreach against energy producing states like Oklahoma and those in the West. Both the state house and Senate issued their support. As representative Jay Stiegel puts it, the 10th amendment limits the scope of federal power and prescribes that the federal government was created by the states specifically to be an agent of the states well within the purview of each individual state to secure its citizens' unalienable rights. I like what they're trying to do here. There's other states that are probably doing it better, but Oklahoma just kind of said, middle finger up, you can't tell us what to do with our minerals, and to an extent, I kind of agree with that. While federal policy, sure, is kind of old, it may need a little bit of a revamp and an update, and it seems like that's what the current administration is doing, I don't know if they can really tell a state, maybe even on the other side of the country, how to extract their minerals. Yeah, I, I think that if you zoom out, you can see that there's a clear uh, line of defense being drawn in the sand by Republican states and a willing acceptance of federal uh, uh, orders by Democratic states. So this will probably go into a, a Supreme Court and be hashed out. Oh, you think it'll make it that far? <laughs> and the final story of Basic Breakdown this month, I really wanted to end with this because uh, it's kind of a high note. It really highlights the good things that do come out of oil and gas because there are plenty to note. Oklahoma is one of the nation's leading energy producers, and nonprofit organizations are extending their thanks. Many nonprofits are highlighting the fact that they could not exist without the supplementary funding of oil and gas production. Every year, the oil and gas industry gives a third of what our campaign raises said United Way of Central Oklahoma President and CEO Debbie Hampton. In the last 10 years, Oklahoma oil and gas has matched one-third of the United Way's raised funds, or some $60 million. In 2021 alone, the industry donated $1,378,155 to regional food banks of Oklahoma. Art programs even benefit from oil and gas. Allied Arts, an Oklahoma-based organization that supports art programs and communities, received $3 million in 2020 alone. The benefits of oil and gas far surpass the funds that are collected as severance tax, and they continue to benefit communities within Oklahoma. That's just a nice little, little feel-good. Yeah, it's a good wholesome there. story. I mean, if you can operate in a community where uh, everyone respects each other, you get things like this. Uh, the money flows and comes around. I mean, over, what, $1.3 million, almost $1.4 million to food banks just so far this year? That's incredible. I wish we engaged in more good deeds and goodwill like that in other states, but it seems like lots of people are just looking to butt heads. Yeah, and, and the benefits of oil and gas far exceed severance tax, like you said. Um, so it's not just our schools that benefit from it. It's our communities. It's hardworking individuals in the industry. It's obviously these arts programs and these other nonprofit organizations. Um, the sad part is, you know, if the more you regulate this oil and gas, um, production, the less income those groups are going to have, uh, and where are they going to go? The, the federal government? <laughs> <laughs> it, 
And even if you're someone who's maybe not into art or community projects or aren't drawing on food banks, yes, even you benefit. I mean, we have cheap, affordable energy. So again, I just wanted to close it out by realizing some of the, I don't want to say unrealized, but under-recognized benefits that oil and gas does bring, but that does bring us to the end of the episode. If you'd like to hear more other Basin Breakdowns from past months, other research that Kevin does every week, or even short-term news that I release on Mondays, please go to rarepetro.com, look at all of our content, all of our segments, plenty of stuff for you to read as well. While you're there, get comfortable, have a good peek around. We've got a new website and it is looking spiffy. You'll definitely want to check it out as it is a big upgrade to what was before. But like I said, that's all we've got for you. Thanks for joining us this month. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.